Welcome to From Russia with Blood, your source of gruesome, highly disturbing, and unbelievable but true crime stories from behind the Soviet curtain. Join our investigation as we go into the shadows to cast light on the nightmarish darkness of the Soviet past, if you dare. The episode you are about to hear contains material of an explicit sexual and criminal nature that some listeners may find extremely disturbing. This podcast is not suitable for minors. Please proceed at your own discretion. A was a very beautiful and clever girl. Born in the south of the Soviet Union, in a small town in Stavropol region, she did exceptionally well at school, was an active young pioneer, a kind of Soviet youth scout troop, and then, later, an active member of the Komsomol, the Young Communist League. Well, in those days you had to be, if you were planning to do anything useful with your life. After school, she entered the Piatigorsk Institute for Foreign Languages, one of the best in the USSR. Not only was she an excellent student, but she was also the class leader and was the first to take part in all the extracurricular activities. In her fourth year, she was sure she would become a teacher of English in one of the local schools after graduation, and she only hoped that her first posting you had to work at least three years after the university, wherever the state sent you in those days, would be somewhere not far from Piatigorsk and the region of the mineral water spas, where there was at least some life, and not get sent to some godforsaken mountain village school. So, when A was called to the dean's office one day, she did not give it a second thought. It was sure to be some request to write an inspiring article for the student paper or to speak at a meeting about the dangers of capitalist propaganda or to do something else along those lines. However, the dean was not in her office and A was instead met by two men dressed in similar gray suits with friendly smiles and inscrutable eyes. They asked her about her childhood, her hometown, her family, her studies. A was a clever girl. She realized they hadn't asked a single question they didn't already know the answer to. At the end of the meeting, the smaller man with a bushy mustache made an offer. Officially after graduation, she would go and work as a teacher in a village some 30 miles away from Piatigorsk. But in fact, she would go to Moscow and study in a special school. A very special school. A was a lucky girl. The very special school in Moscow 
was the KGB higher school named for Felix Dzerzhinsky, a comrade and colleague of Lenin and the founder of the Soviet Secret Service. A studied psychology, languages, and what the late John le Carre called tradecraft, the techniques and protocols of espionage and counter-espionage. But because A was so beautiful, one of her professors told her, you'll never get sent abroad. There you'll be spotted the moment you first step out into a street. Even in Moscow, half the city gawks at you when you walk by. She was indeed a stunningly gorgeous girl. A did not regret not going abroad and was happy to be transferred to Leningrad after her studies were over. Her little red book, the KGB officer ID card, was kept in her case officer's safe at the headquarters. She was assigned to work as a tour guide within the Interest State Travel Agency, the only agency in the USSR that made visits to the country possible for foreigners. Unlike hundreds of thousands of Soviet citizens having to share their apartments with relatives or neighbors, desperately waiting in line for a new apartment, A got a little studio KGB-owned apartment the moment she arrived in Leningrad. The pay was not bad. She liked her job, and she kept up her cover really well. In the days of a total lack of consumer goods in the USSR, there were only two ways to get Western products. One was at the state-owned chain of Biryoska shops, where you could pay either with Western currency, only available to foreign tourists, or with special vouchers available to the Soviet diplomats, journalists, and other specialists who were permitted to work abroad. The second way was to engage in illegal trade with foreign tourists. The economic police were always trying to catch those involved on the black market, but the KGB preferred to use those engaged in illegal trade and look the other way when jeans were exchanged for Russian fur hats or dollars were bought at a rate that was a lot better than at the official state-owned exchange office. It was a dangerous occupation for those outside the law, though, and people were known to have been given capital punishment for that. But there was a demand, and there was a supply. Being a guide working with foreign tourists and not conducting some business on the black market would have been like carrying a bright neon sign with KGB informant written on it. And A was very good at working undercover. She wore Western clothes. She had real leather Italian handbags. She used French perfumes. She ate good food not available in normal shops and she provided her case officer with all the information he needed. They say the KGB had special classes where they trained girls to sleep with foreigners. The girls would later be used as honey traps. 
They also say any agent caught sleeping with a foreigner was sure to lose her job. This actually makes sense. If casual sex developed into romantic feelings, there was no chance the Soviet motherland with her empty shops could compete with the love for a foreign guy backed by a bank account, beautiful home and two cars. If honey traps were indeed used abroad, it was a no-go inside the USSR for regular agents, or so they say. But A just happened to be very horny. Back at the KGB Dzerzhinsky Institute, A's instructors had told her, grab yourself a husband now while you can. Find a cadet from the institute from within the system. That's the only way to do it. After you're in the field, you'll find no one. You'll be an officer with access to classified information on secret assignments. Your spouse must have the same level of clearance. Of course, in theory, if you found a single engineer or teacher or someone else, the office, as the KGB was referred to, could instigate security checks into him, his work, his family history, his friends and contacts, a lengthy process. It could take several years. And of course, during this time, you would be taken from the field and become a paper pusher in some back room in the headquarters with a significant reduction in pay, with no access to Italian bags or French perfume or good food, and until the word go from internal security, still no freedom to have sex. Now A realized the wisdom of the advice, when it was too late. Walking through the halls of the Hermitage Museum, or the Russian Museum Art Gallery, or between the fountains of the Petrodvoretz Gardens, while Italian men looked at the vases and pictures and sculptures, A looked at their tight asses in the latest Levi's blue jeans and would recall her several encounters with the boys from the sports department back in Piatigorsk and would have to keep her insatiable longings somehow under control. There was no way out. It was a dead end. She could not sleep with the tourists. She could not sleep with her debriefing officers in the safe houses, and, as she was never sure if internal security was watching her or not, A basically could not sleep with anyone. But A was a very good agent, and eventually she mounted her very own private operation. In those days, prostitution had not yet grown into an industry. It was absolutely incompatible with the high moral standards of the founders of communism. And the few individuals who went along that path were not only frowned upon, but often persecuted by the police. And yet, here we are again. There was a demand, and there was a supply. So, 
After one debriefing following a trip with a group of Finns along the old Russian towns of the Golden Ring around Moscow, A had a week off until her next group arrived. She took a bottle of amaretto, went to a railway station, and walked half a mile following a fence along the rail tracks to the outskirts of town. Tradecraft. If anyone had been following her, there would have been no way for them to hide. She then sneaked through a little gate in the fence and disappeared into a courtyard with a back exit, then hopped on the metro, changed lines, got off, and went to visit her friend. The amaretto was a welcome gift, and her friend offered her coffee and a chat, as planned. After an hour of discussing their mutual friends, something that happens whenever two girlfriends meet, A checked outside the windows, conveniently overlooking the approach to both the front and back entrances to the Soviet flat block, said her goodbyes and went off on the final leg of her journey. Three tram stops, a walk through the park, and finally, the restaurant. It was off the track for foreign tourists. Nobody knew her there. Only locals came to that place. Her hunt began. In A walked into a half-empty dining room like a star fallen from another planet. The head waiter came to greet her, and having received a fiver, took her to a table with a clear view of both the entrance and the dining room and far enough from the hustle and bustle of the dance floor. A really was quite good at tradecraft. She scanned the room and at once saw two local hookers eyeing her suspiciously. She also saw three groups of her potential customers, a group of army officers, a group of cops in civilian clothes, and a group of young men, probably students. A gave her order, took her Italian leather handbag, and went to the little girl's room. One of the hookers followed, as expected. Are you working or just... just... Don't let me catch you messing with my clients. I wouldn't dream of it. Do I make myself clear? But of course. A turned her back to the hooker, keeping an eye on her in the mirror, expecting to get knocked down. The hooker tried to push her into the wall as expected. A was a good agent. A slight move to one side, a quick, well-trained movement with her hand, then elbow, then a twist of her body, and the hooker was on the floor, the good, strong Italian leather strap tightly around her neck. Do I make myself clear? The hooker groaned in agreement. A calmly returned to her table. Some minutes later, the hooker rushed to her colleague, bruises around her eye and neck. She said a few words to the other girl, gulped down a glass of vodka and disappeared. The second girl did not move for the rest of the evening, 
eyeing A like a frightened puppy. An officer asked A to dance. Studying in the military academy, living in an officer's hostel, no go. One of the cops got promoted, thus the celebration. Nothing to look for there, either. Then one of the boys plucked up his courage and went up to the diva. Are you dancing, madam? A student. Younger than A, but this could be an advantage. Rents a studio with his friend. With a landline. Just the two of them. You want to get your friend and join me? They hit it off right away. A told them she was a teacher, married, of course, but that her husband was away on a business trip for a couple of weeks. No, they cannot visit her. No, she will not give them her phone number nor tell them where she worked. No, they did not want to make any trouble for her. But there could be an arrangement if they were game. Actually, boys, I'm quite hungry. No, leave that salad alone. I don't mean food. They left together, went to the boys' studio, and A got her reward for years of celibacy. While one of the boys had a smoke in the tiny kitchen, A went at it with the other on the old sofa. Then the boy swapped. Neither of the boys lasted more than three times, but A was a very happy girl. She left in the morning. The rules she insisted upon were as follows. They do not try to contact her. She contacts them. They do not talk about the arrangement. Just the three of them, no strangers, no visitors. She calls before her visit. If for some reason it won't work for them, they say so right away. If they give it the go-ahead, they stick to the rules. Not long after, A's next tourist group arrived, and she had to keep a close eye on a certain Nicholas. The office thought he might be the one collecting information from a dead letter box. It proved a false alarm, but A still quietly and efficiently searched his room, took his suitcase, hidden inside a bigger one, out into the courtyard of the hotel where a truck with big letters bread was waiting, the x-ray machine inside. They scanned his suitcase, found nothing, and A returned it to Nicholas's room. The rooms in the Intourist Hotel were all bugged anyway, so at least she did not have to put in her own device. The group left, A was debriefed, and her case officer even told her that the office was very happy with A's work. That meant a very likely promotion to the rank of captain, an increase in salary, and... Last but not least, a transfer to Moscow. Nice. 
Her next group was due in ten days, some western eccentrics who wanted a rafting expedition down a river in Siberia. A had never in her life so much as sat in a rowboat in a park, but she was a good officer and knew exactly the meaning of the word order. A did, however, change the proposed itinerary. Much to the annoyance of the tourists, of course, but too many factories were located on the banks of the river, the sort of factories that had better be hidden from foreign eyes. The two water sports instructors who arrived from a sports academy to travel with the group listened to A's suggestions and did their best to persuade the tourists that the new route was much more picturesque. The mushrooms on the banks were bigger. You had to fight off the fish jumping right into your boat, and the saunas along the route were a once-in-a-lifetime experience. The group was scheduled to fly to Siberia on Saturday, so on Wednesday evening, A went out, checked for a tail, and, having made sure she was safe, used a phone booth three streets away from her apartment. She did have a landline, of course, and she was positive it was tapped. Whether someone actually listened in or not, she did not know, but all her conversations were recorded for sure. And once something is archived, there is always a way to retrieve and study it. Besides, as promotions were known to invite extra vigilance from internal security, she was taking no risks. The boys were told to expect her Thursday afternoon. They also had to buy potatoes. A came to the boys' studio to find a bouquet of sorry-looking daisies in a milk bottle on the kitchen table. These were her first flowers from a lover, something she only used to dream about on many a lonely night. She had brought a big shopping bag with her and took out a pink bathrobe and a pair of matching slippers. These are for me. You wouldn't mind if I keep them here, would you? The rest is for you. The rest was some grade A beef, salami, a bottle of Cinzano, Toblerone chocolate, a can of Nescafe instant coffee and some butter. This was a real feast by Soviet standards. You had to be a director of an important factory to be able to put that on your table. Once a year. For two students, that was heaven. Food and sex. She cooked the potatoes and fried the beef. A was a very good cook. They ate, savoring the food and in anticipation of the main program. Then one of the boys said, Look over here, eh? She had given her real name to the boys in case they ever met somewhere by chance. Watch the birdie. He placed a still camera on the fridge. The three of them sat next to each other, A with her hands around the boys' shoulders and smiling like a film star. Then the flash went off. 
A stood up and took the camera in her hands. It was a Zenit TTL, the state-of-the-art Soviet camera at the time, the dream of all amateur photographers and even many a professional in the hinterland of the great country. Do you have anything else on the film, boys? she asked. No, just you. Good. And with one swift movement, she opened the camera and exposed the whole film to light. No recordings, no cameras. Let's go to bed. The next morning, she cooked breakfast, and while they ate, she told the boys to expect a call by the end of the following month. As she was putting on her shoes, she glanced at her handbag and knew at once what had happened. A had left a little hair on the lock and it was gone. One of them had searched her bag. There was nothing inside, of course, nothing to give away her true identity or job. There was, instead, a certificate of attendance of a child psychology course issued to a teacher named A. Walter Petrova. A. had actually found the paper by a trash can in a street one day and decided to keep it. Useful. But poking through her things was definitely against the rules. She finished putting on her shoes, opened the handbag to reach for lipstick, and then went to kiss the boys goodbye. And just as one of them was about to kiss her on the lips, she pushed him away and demanded, So, what do you two take me for? Look at me when I'm talking to you. You forget I'm a teacher? Nothing to say for yourselves? You're a pair of lousy liars. Come on, spit it out. Here I was bringing you all this stuff and you still try to steal from me? A was a good psychologist. The boys, caught red-handed, blushed furiously and with their eyes cast down, swore they had not taken anything, had just rifled through her handbag. They were so very, very sorry. They promised never to do that again. With that, A kissed them both goodbye and left. The rafting trip in Siberia was not eventful, apart from the fact that A was not a very good paddler. She even managed to fall into the water a couple of times. She was fished out, dried by the fire, and in general taken care of, especially by a German engineer. He offered her his jacket, brought her hot tea, sang her songs by the fire in the evening. On the last evening, the trip over, the flight back to Leningrad the next day, the engineer confessed to A that he loved her and that he was ready to share his life with her, his bungalow with a garden, his murk and his jag. The only thing that troubled him was his swimming pool. It was too small. She smiled and thanked him, and as kindly as she could, rejected him. A was a true professional, and she had also missed 
her period. During her debriefing in a safe house, she did mention the emotionally inclined engineer and was rewarded by a note of commendation from her case officer and given to understand that there were rumors high above that the rank of captain could come with a medal. A had a week before her next assignment. She visited the boys twice that week, but did not stay overnight. Just a couple of hours, some coffee, and chow. And she had a different problem to solve. Although they had not been using the Soviet rubber item number two, electronically tested, but proper Trojan condoms brought by herself, the result was the same. She could find a way to get a quiet abortion, but then, after her last report, what if someone asked her about the father? Everything would point to the German with the two cars and the small pool. No, that was a certain end to her career. She had to find another way. She did remember girls in Piatigorsk sometimes talking about being in the family way and avoiding it. One of the recommendations was to take a hot bath. A was correct in thinking that a hot bath is indeed a safe way to prevent an unwanted pregnancy, although it is a way that works for men. An entire anecdotal belief grew out of a Japanese study that found hot baths a cause of temporary male infertility, but not necessarily an effective method of birth control. According to the study, when a Japanese man decided to stop having children but did not want to give up sex, he would take a hot bath. A very hot bath. This guaranteed infertility for a couple of months. Actually, male genital organs are outside of the body for a biological reason. To produce a live and kicking sperm, male sexual glands must be cooler than the rest of the body. There are many studies pointing to the harmful influence of heat on male reproductive properties. This does not affect women, though. A came home and prepared a hot bath. A very hot bath. She got into the bathtub and kept increasing the water temperature. She turned red. She was very hot. But A was a good officer. She was able to will herself not to feel pain. The water grew hotter and hotter, but A would not bleed. She suddenly became very cold. Her body started to shake. She realized she needed to get out of the tub. She grabbed the side of the tub, started to get up, but everything went black. She felt dizzy and weak and fell backwards. 
The neighbors from the apartment below A's called the police when water started pouring from their ceiling. A was not alone in the tub when they found her. As she was collapsing in the tub, the final convulsions in her body forced the fetus out of the womb, but A did not live to see the abortion. She had died of thermal shock. You have been listening to an episode of From Russia with Blood. It has been carefully researched and produced for you by the Hamovniki brothers. No matter how you found us or what interests brought you here, we're grateful to you for giving us your time, and please keep listening. From Russia with Blood is entirely listener-supported. Go to coffee.com forward slash FWRB, that's ko-fi.com forward slash FWRB for more information. Contributors get exclusive access to episode scripts and extras, including Hamovniki Zastalom, informal reflections, conversations, and insights into the culture of the times. You can follow From Russia with Blood on your preferred podcast platform for more unbelievably gruesome and previously unknown stories of true crime from behind the Soviet curtain.